This is Linux in Laws, a podcast on topics around free and open source software, any associated contraband, communism, the revolution in general, and whatever else fancies your tickle. Please note that this and other episodes may contain strong language, offensive humor, and other certainly not politically correct language. You have been warned. Our parents insisted on this disclaimer. Happy mum! Thus, the content is not suitable for consumption in the workplace, especially when played back on a speaker in an open-plan office or similar environments. Any minors under the age of 35 or any pets, including fluffy little killer bunnies, your trusted guide dog, unless on speed, and cute T-Rexes or other associated dinosaurs. Welcome to Links in Laws, Season 2, Episode 4. Martin, how are things? Yeah, things are great. What about yourself? I can't complain. Can't complain. Now it's the year 2043. Russia has finally given up on the war, which is good news, I think. You, you clearly don't work in marketing or post-production. <laughs> you would be complaining. <laughs> no, Martin, I don't. But this is not a show about post-production or some other ailments. I'm tempted to say, uh, post-production, if you're listening, uh, this was just a joke. <laughs> you think they you. <laughs> they, just, they don't listen, they just cut bits out. <laughs> I hope, I hope. Yeah, yeah, the yeah. hope does last. But this is, not a, you know, this is not a show about post-production, but rather about a very important project called the Software Freedom Conservancy. And without further ado, I would like to hand this over to Karen Sandler and Bradley Kuhn. Why don't you introduce yourself, people? Oh, hi. I'm Karen Sandler. Um, well, you know, we do our own podcast once in a while. Um, we're actually going to, uh, Bradley, I, I hope you forgive me for, for pre-announcing that we're going to be launching uh, or relaunching or new, newly launching one. And when we open those, I usually say, hi, I'm Karen Sandler. And I'm Bradley Kuhn. And we're with the Software Freedom Conservancy. <laughs> Um, yeah, uh, so Software Freedom Conservancy is a charitable organization based in the United States, which is organized around all of the ethical issues surrounding free and open source software. And we've got like three major branches of the work we do. Um, one is that we help support alternatives to proprietary software. The second is that we um, stand up for copyleft in the GPL. Um, and the third is the recognition that free software won't be for everyone if it's not made by everyone. And we have um, diversity and inclusion initiatives uh, like Outreachy. Yeah, uh, well, one of the ways I like to describe it is uh, SFC, uh, since our founding in 2006, one of the things we've always done is we've tried to take on anything we saw in the open source and free software world that, that was not being taken care of that was very important. And we would just put that on our agenda to say that no one, no other organization is handling this issue, working on it, uh, and we feel like it needs to be done. And so that's how we ended up with the, the three areas that Karen is talking about. And before we go even further, Karen, you already mentioned a very important acronym, the GPL. We did do an episode on open source licensing, but maybe not everybody has listened to this. And for those two people in the audience that do not know what a GPL is, maybe you can put this into perspective. Sure. I would, I'd, I'd love to introduce anyone who's listening to the idea of copy left if you aren't familiar with it before. So the GPLs are, um, are a group of uh, licenses and uh, license agreements that are copy left. And I know, Bradley, you love explaining this. So go ahead. I, well, and, and also this is this has kind of been my I, so my role at SFC these days is as uh, one of my roles. I have multiple roles uh, is as policy fellow. And I do a lot of work uh, on the area of open source and free software policy and licensing in particular. So there, there, there are roughly two types of uh, open source and free software licenses, copyleft and non-copyleft. The copyleft ones, uh, frankly, are the most interesting ones because those are the ones that use legal mechanisms to assure the rights of individuals, users, and consumers to modify, improve, and share the software. And the way they do this is by putting requirements. When you share the software with other people, that's encouraged, but you have to give them the complete corresponding source code. So copyleft is a large class of types of licenses. And then the GPL family of licenses that Karen was talking about are the most popular uh, copyleft licenses in use today. That explains a lot. But maybe before we touch on current issues, the SFC has been around for quite some time. But so have the 
Open Source Initiative, half the FSF, half the SF, FSFE, half the EFF. Now, these are all organizations that look after the ideal of open source, or the, I'm almost going to say the idea of open source in general, and also specific issues. For example, the open source, the OSI as an open source initiative also does license validation. Maybe you can kind of explain how you fit into that context and more, most importantly, I reckon, uh, what the differences or different, the differentiators are between you and the other organizations that I just named. Sure. You know, I, well, it's funny because we're actually much newer than those other organizations, which I think is pretty funny. Um, so even though we've been around since 2006, that's newer than many of those other organizations. Um, and we basically wind up, but I think that our, our real focus is that we do all of the pragmatic things that we think are absolutely necessary to forward software freedom. So that's that's been our focus and how we wound up with our three main branches of what we do. And I love saying branches because our logo as Software Freedom Conservancy is a tree because we're conserving um, software rights for everyone to use. And so we like I, I'm kind of love that um, that metaphor. And we have our our branches, but all of the foliage, all of the things that are around the things that we do come up from the absolutely immediate need for software freedom. It's the things that we need to do to know that we can count on our technology and to be able to build the world in which our technology is responsive to its users' needs. So we're at where, you know, if you look at all of the things that we do, they're connected by this, uh, by this thread of what action can we take? How can we shape the world so that um, we give people these rights? Yeah, and, and I, I, the thing I would add to that is that it's it's really important uh, in in a, a social justice cause, which which I view uh, software rights and software freedom uh, as a, one of the many important social justice causes uh, in the world today. Uh, you need a very vibrant uh, face of NGOs uh, that are working in the area. You, one monolithic uh, nonprofit organization. Um, is not uh, is not ideal. You want lots of different organizations uh, doing uh, good work in different ways and on different uh, agendas and on different uh, important issues. What we focused on is, as I, we were saying earlier, the the areas that really no other organization was addressing. Uh, so so that and the two big areas uh, that that are really not addressed elsewhere other than at, at our organization are, are really taking a, a strong look at the underrepresentation of of underrepresented groups in open source and free software. And our outreach initiative is focused uh, on really actually funding people. Uh, to come in from diverse groups. And, and really, we were the, uh, Outreach was really the first program to do this, to actually fund people to work on open source software, because there was this sense that you should be a volunteer first, and uh, you need a tremendous amount of privilege to be able to do that. And so our program is really the only one doing that kind of work. And then on the copyleft enforcement side, uh, really, what I discovered as I've, I've worked uh, with some of the other organizations you mentioned doing copyleft enforcement in the past, and I found that, that, that really nobody was doing it anymore. Uh, and SFC was really the only organization willing to do it. You might be familiar, for example, with Howard Velta's work with uh, GPL violations, amazing work that he did uh, for many years in the early 2000s. But Harold is a very busy, brilliant software developer. He's moved on to other projects and he's not doing GPL enforcement uh, anymore. And so really we were the only ones who were willing to take that on. And it's a very controversial issue in the industry because the, the for-profit industry wants to get away uh, with not following open source licenses. Uh, so, so we've just been the organization that's willing to take on these things that maybe are a little seen as a little more controversial by other organizations, but we think are so important to the social justice cause of software rights and freedom. That I think because we're, oh, sorry. I was just sorry, gonna say Karen. that. I think because Karen, go we're- ahead, sorry. Because we're a slightly newer um, organization in that mix, I feel like we've been freer over the course of our, um, you know, the work that we've done to kind of, uh, you know, make a new path and really focus on those issues of software rights um, and, and look at the, the implication of these issues and the public at large. And that, that's like the thread that unifies all of the work that we do from copyleft enforcement to diversity and inclusion. So go ahead. Sorry about that. Uh, no, by all means, Karen. Uh, Bradley, you just mentioned kind of your your support for the cause, and needless to say, the VMware case that was 
I'm almost interested, I recently fought up in, in, in Hamburg, as in Hamburg, Germany now, where a, a, a kernel developer apparently tried to drag VM in front of court um, citing GPL violations. If I remember correctly, this is about, about five to seven years ago. Maybe I'm wrong. But just as an example, maybe you can shed some more light on this kind of specific case where you actually helped a current developer to fight for, for justice. Yeah, and indeed we did. Um, so Christoph Helwig, uh, I, I, he's been uh, completely comfortable being publicly named, um, is a major contributor to Linux. And, and he's really w- one of the most important contributors, in my view, uh, for policy reasons, which is that uh, he's really been very careful to make sure uh, that he keeps his own copyrights on his contributions to Linux. He doesn't give them away to his employer. Uh, most Linux developers uh, end up in a job where their employer gets all the rights to their software. Of course, it ends up being licensed upstream under GPL, but they don't have any copyrights uh, in the software anymore because it went to their employer. Christoph is different. He's kept all his copyrights. And so when we discovered that VMware was violating the GPL in, in a really uh, troubling way, um, we, we uh, talked to Christoph and he was very interested in bringing, uh, bringing a case uh, in, in, uh, in Germany uh, regarding that GPL violation. Uh, ultimately, uh, what happened was uh, after a lot, a lot of legal wrangling, and I, I think the German court, uh, to be quite frank about it, was a, was a little uh, surprised uh, that various different um, norms of German courts were not obeyed by VMware. They kind of brought in U.S. litigation teams uh, and kind of were just doing U.S. litigation in a German court. It, it, it seemed like it was very offensive to, to the, to the courts in Germany. But in the end, they, wow. they, okay. they weren't sure how to deal with uh, this mess. And fortunately, VMware uh, was able to uh, to come into compliance uh, basically by discontinuing the product that was violating. So we did achieve compliance there, uh, but it was hard fought. And uh, and ultimately, we, we basically had to do it out of court. Wow, that's that sounds serious. I wasn't aware, actually, that, VV, that VMware tried these, I'm almost going to say tricks, but moves, let's put it this way. It, it, um, was, it was so wow. funny that they, uh, one of the things they did, we were so surprised. Uh, Harold Velta, actually, uh, I mentioned him before, he went to the hearing because he's, Chris, uh, even though he's not working day to day on GPL enforcement, he's still very interested in the topic, of course. He went to the hearing and said there was this goofy thing where they didn't even hire lawyers who could speak German. So they had like all these U.S. lawyers showed up and would make their argument in English. And then a translator would have to read off what they said in German and then be translated back when the judges responded uh, uh, to, to back to English, which is which is really rude to, to do. Uh, you know, you come to someone's country, you should you should hire a lawyer that speaks the local language. Uh, so so we uh, every, I think while we didn't get the legal ruling we would have loved in the VMware case, I think it showed um, the behavior of these companies that violate the GPL uh, is really inappropriate. And that was just one example of how that happens. Yeah, I think you have to basically expect that, um, like, people think that the GPL is, they use the phrase, people use the phrase magic pixie dust, right? You think that just because you license your software under a strong copyleft license, that it doesn't, uh, like, that that automatically you're, you're set and the rules will be followed. But in actuality, non-compliance is so rife. So many companies are in violation. And when you do bring litigation, companies bring whatever dirty tricks they can. They do everything they can to slow things down, to make it more expensive, to make it more difficult. And what's worse is that because there are collections of companies, because because companies in general don't want to have to follow the rules, they'll throw resources behind the ones that are defendants in these cases. So they're, you know, anytime you bring a GPL enforcement action, you have to expect that that company will be fully resourced um, very comfortably because uh, because so many companies that are not part of the lawsuit will want to make sure that there are as few obligations with copyleft as possible. No, that's that's. Um, I'm not personally <coughs> familiar with that case, but um, um, I do know that VMware is a big open source supporter. Uh, in general, though, uh, is it the uh, you mentioned the legal aspects in the license um, uh, compliance and things like that? Is that the main focus of your activities, or, or uh, I mean, clearly there are some other um, 
issues that open source software projects face these days, right? Are you uh, doing any initiatives in that direction? Yeah, I mean, we have a wide variety of initiatives that we do. And, you know, VMware was that case that we did back then, but now we've recent, more recently brought um, a, a lawsuit against Vizio directly as purchasers of a television to really talk about, like, to, to demonstrate that um, people who purchase equipment that have copyleft software on them have rights. Um, and so, uh, you know, that's the case that we're working on now, as well as some other enforcement stuff. Um, so, uh, and, and probably by the time this airs, there might be some, um, some more information about it. But, um, but then that's just one of the three major branches. And so, you know, running uh, Outreachy, which is an initiative where we give paid remote internships to people who are subject to systemic bias and are impacted by underrepresentation. And we do about 130 internships per year. Um, we have another program called um, the Institute for um, uh, Computing and Research, which gives internships to high school kids. Um, we do general advocacy for software freedom, and we do um, quite a lot of policy work. And then we also support our um, our member projects, who are free software projects that are um, where their nonprofit home. And then finally, part of our advocacy is we do conferences. And so, um, by the time you all are hearing this, we're going to be looking forward to our second annual FOSI, Free and Open Source Software Yearly, which is a conference that was started this year in Portland, Oregon, in July. Before we go on into the subject, Karen, and this is much appreciated. Don't get me wrong. You just touched upon a very serious issue, namely the the right of people to know what's going on with regards to software and how it works. Uh, I can recall seeing, I think it was an art, it was a piece somewhere, either blog or something like, or blog a blog post or something like this, or maybe even a, a, a piece in the press about you and uh, and a pacemaker. And to me, that rang a bell at the very core of my soul, I'm tempted to say, because at the end of the day, if you're a patient, you want to know what's going on with a device that essentially keeps you alive. That's right. Um, I unfortunately was born with a heart condition where my heart is a, is a very thick heart. Um, and I generally don't have any symptoms from day to day but I'm at a very high risk of suddenly dying, <laughs> which is the term that doctors use of sudden death. And so I have a pacemaker defibrillator implanted that monitors my heart um, so that if I go into a dangerous rhythm, it can shock me. Um, and as a, a technical person, um, I went to engineering school and was a programmer turned lawyer. It caused me to research the safety and, and efficacy of these devices and you know, what I, I found was appalling um, and it caused me to be really interested in the, you know, figuring out how we could be able to make sure these devices were safe. And of course, that's when I discovered that all of the, when I really began to appreciate that all of these devices that are so critical to our lives are run on proprietary software that you can't look at, you can't change, you can't audit, even though that software is implanted in a device that is literally sewn into your body and screwed into your heart. And as I've lived with this device, you know, I, at first I thought it was really about transparency. Like how, how, how is it possible that I could have a device in my own body where I can't see the code on it? And as I live with the device, I, I realized that I, I had all these experiences that demonstrated that it was more than just transparency when I was pregnant, my device shocked me because I was, my heart was doing what a normal pregnant woman's heart does. About a third of all pregnant people have, um, have uh, palpitations. It's super, super common. And, um, and it would be fine in most cases, you would go to your doctor and your doctor would say, oh, you just have palpitations, it's really common. Um, but for me, because I had a defibrillator, my device thought that I was in a dangerous rhythm and it shocked me repeatedly. And the even though I didn't need any treatment, my heart was not in a dangerous rhythm. Um, it was just beating fast. And so the only way that I could stop the device from unnecessarily shocking me was by taking drugs that slowed my heart rate down so much that it was hard to walk up a flight of stairs. And 
it made me realize that, oh my gosh, this is more than just about transparency and auditability. It is very much about control because these devices fail. And what will we be able to do when they fail? And, you know, it, it was, it, it showed this mismatch in our, like the technology that we rely on, where despite sometimes the best, like often the best intentions of the manufacturers may not line up with the actual use cases because only 15% of defibrillators go to people under the age of 65 and fewer than half of them are women to begin with. So the number of people who are pregnant with defibrillators is such a teeny tiny set of people. So it's not surprising when you think about it that there might be use cases that weren't planned for in the algorithms on the device, but it had this catastrophic result. And it just stands for the proposition that we, we, need, we, need, we need to do better. This device is a, is a metaphor for all of the software we rely on. And then quite recently, I had this experience where I, I couldn't access the information on my device um, and had to, had to travel all over New York City to try to get that information because we didn't have interoperability. And every time that I, I live another year with this device, I realized that these issues around software freedom are not esoteric, they're not intellectual, they are immediate, and we need to do something about them now. I couldn't agree more, Karen. Question, if I recall correctly, there's a motion being put in front of Congress or some other governing body in the US to make any medical software open source per se, if I understood this correctly. There are a, a variety of, of, um, of initiatives that have been proposed and they keep coming up and none of them have been taken very seriously. Um, I've been very encouraged by some of the more recent right to repair legislation, the legislation that has passed in different parts of the United States, but um, but it's it's slow going. So you know it's funny because I, I, I you get excited for every everything that's proposed, but then it just sits in committee or it doesn't go anywhere. And I think that the main thing is is that we need to raise awareness so that uh, you know so that politicians really feel like they need to be responsive to their constituents and that these issues are not going away and they have to educate themselves and they have to um, figure out what to do. I know Bradley has some thoughts. Well, and there's, and there's a, I think there's a big misunderstanding about how software has become so pervasive uh, in the lives of everyday people. When you talk about, well, medical software ought to be open source, uh, that, would, that, that needs to include Zoom. Uh, Zoom should be 100% open source t tomorrow because many, many people, at least here in the United States, are getting uh, telemedicine uh, and the primary platform being used is Zoom uh, for everything from uh, mental health therapy to uh, remote diagnosis and so forth. Uh, and and I, I even know people who just see their regular primary care physician uh, as telehealth instead of in person if there's nothing, there's no exam needed. So these kinds of situations, we're not really considering how much everyone's daily life depends on software. And the ironic thing is every day it's true that open source and free software is more popular and there are more lines of open source and free software code in existence every day than there ever has been in history. Yet every single day, this huge paradox is true that every single day there is more proprietary software that people rely on than ever before. So we have more open source than we ever did, but there's so much more software in the world by more orders of magnitude than the amount of open source in the world that most of people's software use every day is using proprietary software and it's become almost impossible. Really, if you live in a city or an industrialized area, it's completely impossible to get through your day without having to interact or use some sort of proprietary software. And that shows us that we're in a disaster scenario with regard to software rights and software freedom. It's so pervasive. You can't, your kids cannot attend school without using proprietary software. And, and the surveillance that is, is built into all of that and the reliance on centralized systems is so great that we we are in this absolute emergency scenario before we go before we go back to to proprietary software use in schools and education systems in general i would just like to touch 
upon a further aspect that just crossed my mind with regards to proprietary software use, use in medical systems. And yes, I, I, Bradley, I get the idea that Zoom is pretty important with regards to, to telemedicine, but I reckon there's a slight difference between a device that is actually supporting your body 24 by 7 and a uh, telecom network basically supporting remote diagnosis. Oh, uh, oh I, I agree we, completely. I, I uh, wasn't trying to create a false equivalency. Uh, so, the point yes, I was trying to make it. is that uh, that we're in danger in every aspect of our lives, um, from medicine to everything else. And, and a lot of times the uh, the threat is not so obvious. I think it's much more obvious uh, the what Karen has been through, which is completely horrendous. She has the right to see the source code that's running and uh, of software that's running in her body. And it is a travesty that she's been refused uh, by, uh, oh. by everyone, the FDA and medical device companies from being able to see it. Uh, so that situation is, is clearly much more acute and much worse uh, than the zoom situation. But I didn't, I brought it up mainly to point out that, 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 that zoom can't be trusted. And recently uh, just last year, zoom, uh, just unilaterally started feeding everybody's data uh, in uh, including all the data you had in chats into uh, machine learning training systems. Uh, now they've backed off and said they're not doing that anymore, although there's no guarantees and they can change back at any time when no one's looking. And it actually took the press uh, almost, uh, I think, four months uh, to discover that this they were doing this because uh, they changed the term to service and then nobody noticed. Uh, and so uh, these kinds of things are happening all the time where your data uh, and possibly your medical data is being used by companies to do whatever they want with it because they're the technology company in the middle between you and your healthcare provider or you and your government or you and your bank. Before we touch on the very important subject of GitHub and Copilot, let me go back to a medical device, Karen. Given the current litigations against big tech, like the Googles, the Microsofts, the Amazons of the world, by something called the FTC and other, and other governing bodies in the US, has it ever crossed your mind to draw that very short connection between software used for medical devices must be open source because of monopoly reasons, simple as that. Because if everybody has access to the source code, they can actually foster competition in, the, in that area. Because essentially what you're doing, if you're buying a pacemaker with a closed source code base, this essentially is monopoly, no? Yeah, I by mean, I love that. Oh, sorry. By open sourcing this, you would actually create an equal playing ground for all the players in that industry. Yeah, I love that analysis. And I think it's right across different industries. Medical devices are funny because the companies wind up having, you know, they each have their own little niche. Um, and I think that the thing that's been the most compelling story on having the access to the source code on medical devices has been the examples of the small companies who have um, have created critical like critical devices that people absolutely need to live and then have gone out of business. Um, they were venture capital funded um, or they were, you know, um, uh, they, they were all siloed within one company and something changes and the company no longer supports it. And people have devices that are completely useless to them. A really good example of this is people had eye implants that actually helped people see who could not otherwise see. And the company ran out of funding and over time without any updates or support, these devices stopped working. And so you can, you know, there are really amazing stories of people who was somebody who was on the subway in New York and remembers the moment where they were trying to transfer trains and their vision went away and they had no ability to update the software, which would have basically fixed the problem. Um, and so these are very compelling stories that I think help people understand why this is so important. I think that the monopoly angle is, is a good one. Um, you know, the reason I believe that the medical device companies were so greedy to not share their source code was mostly around software patents, which was a, just a, like a completely irrational um, type of argument. So I, I don't know, but I, this, this, these issues around, um, you know, the, the catastrophes of obsolescence are going to affect everybody over time. I mentioned that I could not get my defibrillator interrogated in New York City running around. 
I, I wound up with a, a small defibrillator manufacturer. Uh, well, it's, it's a large one, but with a small imprint in the United States because it was the only manufacturer in the United States that um, could have the connectivity, the, the wireless connectivity disabled in software. Otherwise, the devices are all broadcasting and talking to each other um, consistently. And ultimately, it was easier for me to get my defibrillator interrogated in Europe, where I was going for work, than it was in the in the, in the United States, because the company had has a much much smaller presence in the United States than they did when I first got the device. So this is something that you could analogize to all of the different areas, and I think that what's really exciting in the medical device space is that in the insulin pump world, folks have really like taken matters into their own hands and have um, been adjusting their own insulin delivery by exploiting security vulnerabilities in their insulin pumps. And it shows the promise of how, um, like what we can do by using software to improve our situation. And I think that we do that across the board. And so like having our, all of the ways in which we work towards software freedom together demonstrates how we can do things differently. And I think that this kind of connects to um, to the issues of why getting access to your source code is so important and why what the GPL guarantees, what copyleft licenses guarantee in being giving users rights to ask for their software is absolutely the most essential thing. And this is what really surprised me in the light of the FDA. Sorry for the two listeners who are not familiar with the U.S. system. Uh, the FDA stands for the Federal Drug and, uh, sorry, the Food and Drug Administration of the U.S., essentially a governing body that has the final say of what goes and what doesn't when it comes down to food, drug, and, and, and the rest of it. So it does surprise me, Karen, and I'm really honest with you, that this is not on the FDA's radar because at the end of the day, we're talking about human lives here. Absolutely. They, you know, it's funny because I, like, I, I just think they don't, you know, the, the companies are so in like, are, are, they have so much in the way of lobbying efforts. And this is true, not just in medical devices, but they're, they, that they, they insist that the only way to get things done is through proprietary software and centralized, you know, corporate solutions. And we just see Amazing. that that's, yeah, and I think that the experiment of copyleft in particular has not really been tried across the board in almost any industry. And I, you know, I think that this is really the 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 time to take the skepticism that the everyday person has for big tech solutions, and to and to to run with that to try doing solving these problems in a different way that software freedom respecting and decentralized. Yeah, <clears throat> I've been listening to this with with interest because it's. Uh... Uh, clearly, clearly, in an ideal world, <laughs> it would all be um, open source and freely accessible to see what uh, everything runs. Uh, what about the, let's say, the legislation about these things, though? I mean, if you uh, take, for example, the future of, of cars and the software they run on, um, or even the defense industry, uh, how are you looking at those kind of industries where clearly you have to have... Uh, some guarantees in place, and and do you really want to open source all the software that um, is built for these types of devices? Um, and secondly, the, the yeah, I guess all these proprietary software companies exist because of the commercial models that we have, right? That, that's why they are uh, successful in what they do, um, and that's clearly we have a lot of initiatives around open source software to promote it and to to help with funding for projects and things like that but um yeah how are you going to com compete against a billion dollar company right as a project with with two people writing a similar piece of software uh, so a few, few questions questions in there sorry the first one first the, the first question was more about uh yeah the, the, the regulatory uh issues with regard to devices uh that relate to safety uh, well, proprietary software has already killed people and has killed people as recently as the as the some of the Tesla uh, car updates. The proprietary software in there uh, has has harmed people. Uh, so the idea that somehow open source and free software is gonna is gonna harm people, well, the, the proprietary software is doing doing a rather disturbing job at that already. Uh, and another point is that security through obscurity, we well know, does not work. Proprietary, proprietarizing the software is just a form of security through obscurity. If, if you Bradley, can't sorry. guarantee that when sorry, someone Bradley. gets the source code, they can't Bradley, sorry, break the device. Probably, 
Uh, sorry, Bradley, for the, just two yeah. listeners of the audience who do who are not familiar with the concept, we should probably explain what security through obscurity is. Sure, sure. It's so, in the name, so, isn't it? <laughs> so, so, well, so you know, in software, yes no. lots of people uh, spend a lot of time working on computer security, uh, and computer security as a field, uh, uh, you know, academically and in the industry, um, is is near is nearby open source, but orthogonal to it. Uh, and security researchers have long looked at the question of if you can make it difficult to figure something out, wh whereby you need an incredibly high level of technical skill and time investment, does that make the software more secure? Uh, that's, a, that's a question you can ask. And study after study and, uh, and all basically all security researchers believe that it doesn't actually help because the person who's most likely... Uh, to want to do harmful things uh, is going to invest the time. So if you have proprietary software, uh, you can analyze that proprietary software through painstaking work, uh, looking for flaws that you can exploit so that you can you know, make the car's brakes not, not work or whatever it is you might want to do. Uh, and that can be done with proprietary software, uh, just like it can be done with open source. The counter argument that folks would make is, well, it's faster with open source, but the other benefit you get with open source, uh, as has long been argued uh, in open source and free software circles, is that the number of people who can vet the source code who are well-intentioned are much greater than the number of people who vet it that are badly intended uh, to do something wrong. In essence, if something's proprietary, the only people who are going to do the work to figure out if there's security flaws in it are people who want to do nefarious things. If something is open source, there are millions of people, security researchers, users, folks in the world who would gladly use the software, look at the software source code to check it for security and safety uh, as, as, as part of their, their other work. So it, there's actually a very strong argument that, that as a regulatory matter, we should encourage, as we were talking about with medical devices, also true with cars, that we should have the software open source so that there are more people reviewing it rather than just a small number of people at one car company uh, looking at the software. So that's the first question. Your second question was, uh, how do we be, your second question could be summed up as, how do we, how do we deal with the fact that we live in a oppressive capitalist society worldwide at this point? Um, because that's really the problem there. Proprietary software exists as a handout to for-profit companies. Uh, it, when the various different legal systems that were designed around the world that permit a company to make something proprietary were created, they were designed to benefit for-profit corporate activity. They were designed to benefit, maximize shareholder value uh, so that you could create software that allowed you to license it in ways that forced every single user to pay money to get a copy of the software. And if they didn't pay, it gave you mechanisms to take away their software. Uh, my answer to how do we fight these capitalist structures that want to proprietarize software, our answer ought to be, why should we be giving that power and authority over to these for-profit companies uh, without a debate? Never, in, at least in the U.S. I'm most familiar with, but I think this is true around the world, have legislatures and parliaments actually debated whether it was morally correct to give all this power and authority and control of all our technology over to companies. And we even see it in, in new debates when the machine learning stuff uh, became very much a center of debate and discussion. It's still ongoing now. Uh, that started in late 2022, early 2023. Uh, everybody was just rushing to the idea of, well, well, let's make sure that this, this technology can happen in a way that, that lets companies make money with it, because that's the most important thing in our society is companies making money and any other concern is secondary. I think the first concern with machine learning or anything else is how is the individual consumer and user being treated by these systems? And if they're be being treated poorly, we should make solving that the priority, even if it means companies don't get to make as much money as they used to. Companies are very good at finding ways to way make money in whatever regulatory regime they live in. The problem in software is our regulatory regime is completely biased towards what big tech wants. And we have to acknowledge that the impact of these technologies is so broad. So it's not just the user, it's not just the consumer, but it's the, the number of bystanders is so great and the impact is, is uh, un, 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 unprecedented and very hard to anticipate.
I make perfect sense. Make perfect sense. So, are we um, <clears throat> uh, kind of, I guess, heading more towards a communistic model where <laughs> where we don't have companies making money? Is that that what we're um, trying to get to? Because I mean, you know, the, the the legislation exists because it was voted. Clearly, there are some initiatives to to change this, which is great. Um, but it will be hard to change all of it because of the people that run these governments and are influenced by these governments, which are clearly the big tech companies. So um, it's not a, a simple solution. Right? It is so complicated, right? It's so complicated because we're we're entrenched in the system we're entrenched in. But that doesn't mean we can't change. I mean, my views about, um, about capitalism are, are different than Bradley's. Um, so I don't want anyone to interpret this as being from, you know, my, my view as well. We do agree on a, on a lot. Um, and, and in my view, it's that, you know, regulation is absolutely essential. And what we've seen in Europe in terms of legislating big companies is, you know, is, I think, an example of what is possible. Um, and I would love to see more countries, especially the United States, em embrace it, uh, you know, embrace it um, and, 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 and uh, do the same thing. But I, I, what I want to see is new initiatives that use a nonprofit or alternate model for the creation of critical pieces of software. And it is not too late to do that. And we can do that one thing at a time. So we may not be able to move away today from every single piece of technology that we rely on. But what we can is start alternate initiatives for, for particular things that we count on. Um, you touched okay. upon a very important subject there, Bradley, namely AI. And I can recall seeing a blog post in the context of something called Copilot and GitHub, especially from with regards to license violation, which nicely brings us back to, um, I'm tempted almost to say to the beginning of the discussion, but maybe you can shed some light on why this is so important as of today and maybe for the next, what, 100, maybe 120 years, maybe even more. <laughs> Yeah, so I, so I will answer that question. I do want to answer Martin's point, point about uh, it's been a while since uh, I've been accused of being a communist because I believe in software rights and freedom. Um, but I realize you weren't accusing me, but people do accuse occasionally. And that was a standard accusation. Um, most people call coffee left, left license communism uh, in in the early 2000s. Uh, Forbes magazine ran an article written by uh, uh, written by a, a person who later strangely went on to be one of the writers on the Silicon Valley television show, um, basically saying that that we were all communists. Uh, that anybody who believed in coffee left license were communists, and we were we were pushing forward a communist agenda. Um, so so you know capitalists love to call anybody who wants them regulated a communist. Uh, I, I think a well I think uh, I, I definitely I'm against unbridled capitalism. I don't think companies should set policy for themselves, which is what we have in the software industry right now. And it relates to, to Richard's question about artificial intelligence and machine learning. Uh, right now, we have a system where companies just, uh, qu quote, self-regulate, unquote. Uh, and, and it's true in the U.S. It's less true in Europe, uh, for sure. I think the European uh, Commission has done a lot better job uh, than U.S. regulators have. But in both cases, uh, there's a lot of leeway uh, and in the U.S., just unbelievable leeway given to what big tech wants to do. Uh, and I think that we should have strong regulation. I think it's very hard to get because we have uh, extremely corrupt politics uh, around the world and in the U.S. in particular. Uh, and I, I, I'm not picking I'm not picking a party of any sort in the U.S. I think all, all the all the politicians in the U.S. are generally uh, run by uh, what their donors want and, and the people funding their campaigns want as opposed to what the people want. Uh, that's pretty much true across the board. Uh, uh, and and therefore, it's very hard to get the kind of regulation we need. And, and so enters machine learning, right? We're, we're in this situation where uh, companies are moving incredibly fast uh, with newer machine learning technologies. They're, they're not really that new. They're just able to implement things that were thought of 10, 15 years ago because the amount of computing power uh, and disk storage available uh, has increased so much in the last 15 years uh, that suddenly things that 30 years ago we could only imagine doing, uh, we can now do. Uh, but the, the idea that, that we're just going to roll out these systems without any question to how they're going to impact uh, the, the open source community specifically, which relates to your Git, GitHub Copilot question, but all of society in general. Uh, there, there's really no interest in, in 
in any other than giving it lip service to really thinking about the question of how society is going to be impacted by machine learning systems that only a few companies control. No one's going to see, other than the people who work for those companies, the data sets that train these things. No one's going to see the the pre-processing and post-processing, which is an incredibly essential part, particularly the post-processing of filtering uh, what these machine learning systems output to massage it into what you want. Those That's just regular old software programs. It's just code. It's not anything new machine learning. It's just code on the back end uh, that, that, that massages the output data. And none of that is being made open source at this point. Uh, and uh, and I, I think SFC at, at Solve Freedom Conservancy, we're really the only organization that's demanding that we reach the, the we, we, we aspire for something really, really ideal. Uh, and, and folks will see on our website, we've got a publication, uh, hopefully it will be out by the time folks hear this, uh, that talks about what the ideal for machine learning ought to be uh, as far as making it so that it treats individual users and consumers correctly. Uh, and if big tech can't find a way to make money doing that type of machine learning, I think maybe we shouldn't have it. I guess that's somewhat somewhat of a, of a socialist statement, maybe. But I, I do think that there will be plenty of business models around open source and free software for machine learning and everything else, as there always has been. Because it's just the case that you can make money with open source and free software. You just don't make billions, you only make millions, as I've often said. It's an interesting point. I, um, having dealt with this area for, for a fair bit, I, I guess the um, there is, not, well, I mean, there is various parts to this. There is the data, there is the uh, the models, and um, uh, yeah, things that are built on top of that. So uh, as far as I have observed so far most i mean clearly chat gpt is a different question altogether but a lot of the other uh, let's say big language models out there are open sourced um even developed by by universities and but also um commercial uh, companies who are happy to outsource uh, open source those models um so were you specifically talking about the data or, or more about the let's say the the applications build on top of that, or, or are you thinking of the chat GPTs or the world there in the Microsoft? Right, I'm, I'm thinking of all of it, chat, the chat GPT and the image generation systems and uh, anything that's come out new since we recorded this, which there probably will be uh, some applications of machine learning that, that are new between when we recorded this and when folks are hearing it. Uh, and uh, I, I actually think we should think aspirationally. Uh, one of the things I think that others in the open source world have made a mistake with, and this is not just true with machine learning, it's true with kind of everything we've ever done, is we've had a kind of a race to the bottom. Where uh, where we said, well, here's the minimum th things you have to do under the open source definition or free software definition to just barely make something open source or free software. And we've, we've tried to make these bare minimum definitions uh, for industry. I don't think it's our job as software rights and freedom activists to give the bare minimum. What we're supposed to do is shine the light to what would the ideal be. And I think with the machine learning, the ideal is pretty obvious. Uh, absolutely everyone should have access to the data set that trained it. Absolutely everyone should have the right to train the model uh, on their on their own uh, to, or to retrain the model on their own to change it. Absolutely everyone should have the source code to every single piece of software and its scripts used to control compilation and installation for anything used at any part in the chain. And for the application software, be it the chat GPT interface or the Copilot interface, all that should be open source as well. And that's what yeah. a good society would look like. I realize I just, companies totally agree, be totally agree. required to do that, but that would be the right thing to do. Yeah, and the data sets. Yeah, and the data sets in particular, they're built on our backs, right? Like we had this hilarious situation at SOC where we got this voicemail from someone who called us and said, um, and said, you know, I don't, I'd never heard of you all software freedom conservancy before, but I asked ChatGPT who I should donate to. I said, I want to give $10 to an organization. <laughs> who should I donate to? And ChatGPT, first, it didn't tell me who to donate to, but I asked it and asked it and asked it. And eventually, it said that I should donate to the Software Freedom Conservancy. So you'll see my $10 coming in. And I just wanted you to know that it was because ChatGPT told me to. And it was so funny because, you know, this it's not that Software Freedom Conservancy is so famous 
that everyone knows about us. I mean, I would love people to know about us. I would love for everybody to donate to us, of course. Um, but it's because the, the information, the data set is created off of the massive amount of work that the free and open source software communities have been working on. And so this idea that it's available to us is, is essential because that is where it comes from. Yeah, there, there have been also cases the other way around, right, where, where people have um, uh, tried to take action because of certain data being used by these these models um, and without having given consent. So it's that kind of, yeah, I mean, you could say that conflicts with, with um, uh, the freedom to, to use any data out there. Um, specifically, there are uh, cases in, in the image industry, but also uh, Texts that have been used for the for the language models. Um, so, so how do you see that? Is is that the case that anything that's out there, uh, licensed in a certain way, should be um, be able to use by these uh, training these models, or how, do you have some view on on restricting that at all? Well, they have to do it in compliance with the license. Uh, and this is where copyleft licenses are so important. Uh, we have examples of where Copilot has actually produced what is obviously GPL software copied out of a GPL project. Uh, and every time someone finds an example like, like this and publishes it, what Copilot does, remember I was talking about that backend software that's just like regular code that works on the model after it generates something. Uh, they just keep adding code to that part. Obviously, we can tell from, from what happens that just says, oh, if you're about to generate that, that this stream of code, just don't generate that because that because <laughs> that we, we've, we, we've determined that that was GPL. Um, but but that shows us they gave absolutely no consideration to the license requirements of copyleft. Uh, they have taken the position. This is true across. This is not just true of uh, of, of copyleft the software. It's true of things like uh, proprietary copyrighted images, uh, where the companies have just said, "Well, we're just going to conclude that we can use uh, use this material that's public in any way we want, and we don't have to comply with any licenses, and we have no requirements." Uh, and and frankly, the folks who are uh, who are the uh, controllers of proprietary copyrighted images, like Getty Images, for example, they're much more upset about this than even the open source people are. But the argument is the same, that there are certain legal systems already in existence that the big tech companies are just saying, well, this is all new. And, and this is a classic thing that big tech has always argued. You're just trying, they say, to slow technology down with your old systems. This is a new world. It's everything's revolutionary and none of the rules apply. And by the way, we're making the rules and these are the rules we like. And that's what they're doing with this. And it's very interesting to note, we had discussions with, uh, with Microsoft and GitHub when they launched Copilot. And I asked them this very pointed question. I said, it's obvious you used all of GitHub uh, or large parts of what's on GitHub as open source to train your model, because we're seeing it output stuff from those projects. Did you also train it on all of Microsoft Windows, Microsoft Office source code? And if you didn't, why not? Because if your argument is all that the, the, the system is better if we have the most amount of code put into it, and once you put the code into it, there's no way you could be infringing anybody's rights. Why didn't they put their own code into it? And they wouldn't even answer one way or another if they put their own kit into it. I think the answer is no, they did not. And they certainly wouldn't answer why they made a distinction between proprietary and open source code. So it's clear that these companies are unfairly treating not just open source projects, but Wikipedia and all these other community-based knowledge collection projects that put together public-facing repositories of interesting, important works of human endeavor and they're just saying, they're all ours now. We can do whatever we want. And their reason for that is because machine learning is revolutionary. They have no other argument other than that, which is completely a meaningless argument, in my opinion. Bradley, I couldn't agree more. On the other side, I reckon, and I suppose Martin concurs with me here on that, there are quite a few open source alternatives out there with regards to AI. As a matter of fact, blatant teaser, we did run a mini-series on artificial intelligence and deep learning about 20 years ago 
when we first started this podcast, no joke aside, Liz may have been on the show. I remember that far back. This is I remember when I was in graduate school in 1997, <laughs> I sat in a machine learning talk by one of the other graduate students, and everything they were describing is just the stuff they do today. So their argument that it's revolutionary is sort of like, well, no, it's just we have bigger disks and faster CPUs now. It's not, it's not that the ideas uh, are any different than what we thought of 30 years ago. Exactly, Bradley. Don't forget the money aspect because Google mm. has pouring, <laughs> yeah. I don't know how many billions of dollars. Oh, Google and Microsoft, right? Exactly. <laughs> it's that sort of technology for the last twenty plus years. But I think we could go on for hours and hours and hours on this one. Unfortunately, we have a time limit, so let's wrap this up. And before I forget, I need to say we should probably do the poxies as in the picks of the week. Ah, before we do that, um, yes. now is the uh, time for uh, Bradley and Karen to do any plugging. Or, yes, very important. Off, if you off, want to off, anything. Yeah, anything that helps that you need or anything you want to promote. Yeah, yeah we have plugs. <laughs> Go for <laughs> it. So, firstly, do like ChatGPT tells you to and donate to Software Freedom Conservancy. SoftwareFreedomConservancy.org. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I also, uh, by the when you're listening to this now, um, Fossey is coming right up. Uh, I imagine our call for papers is probably for speakers is probably open. So go check that out. Plan on coming to um, to Portland, US in um, in July. Um, and uh, oh, uh, Outreachy, our diversity initiative. Um, uh, if you are involved with an um, with a free and open source software project, consider having your community join Outreachy. If you know people who have been have experienced systemic bias, who have been discriminated against, um, tell them about the opportunities that exist. Um, so yeah, I think those are the main plugs. Bradley, what am I missing? Thanks of course. Well, I, show I, notes. Think, uh, I will reiterate: uh, we are a, a charity. If you're in the United States, uh, it's uh, a tax-deductible 501c3 uh, charity. Uh, consult your tax attorney to confirm. Uh, mm. But uh, we did an, uh, an episode on that as well, didn't we? <laughs> oh, <laughs> we did. yeah, yeah, so go back and listen to that episode if you're confused. But please, <laughs> please do donate. And uh, and and also, I, I, you know, by the time uh, you all are hearing this, uh, we have relaunched our, our podcast. I am sure many of the listeners here ha have uh, have come over because they uh, they liked our, uh, the podcast Karen and I used to do years ago. Uh, we have we have relaunched a new podcast that you can find on uh, Software Freedom Conservancy's website, uh, and uh, we encourage people to listen to it. And now that I've said that, we have no choice but to launch it. Now we're stuck. <laughs> Thanks, Bradley. Absolutely. Uh, Mark, Martin, take a leave from their book. They're doing marketing correctly. You just keep firing the department. Well, that's because they don't anyway. have a department, right? They're just doing it themselves. <laughs> okay, people, over to the boxes if that's okay with you. Uh, Karen or Bradley, what's your box? So, so given that I was talking a lot about uh, political, how political corruption uh, can really influence uh, influence uh, the, the issue of proprietary and, and open source and free software, uh, because big tech is lobbying and so forth, I really encourage people to find this very old uh, U.S. movie. Um, it's called Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. Uh, it's by a director named Frank Capra. It was released in 1939, so it's an old black and white uh, film. Uh, but it is really the, the best film I've ever seen that really explains uh, both what corruption is like and, and what it takes uh, to oppose corruption and the kind of person you have to be to oppose corruption. Uh, and it's been an inspiration. That film has been an inspiration for my work and my life. Uh, I saw it as a kid. I rewatch it uh, on, uh, regularly. And I think everybody should check out Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. Nice. I have an, 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 an orthodox pick, perhaps, uh, which is chocolate. I picked chocolate. I recommend everybody pick chocolate today. Uh, this is a regulated drug in the US. It's not completely mistaken, right? <laughs> I'm just asking. <laughs> no, any particular reason? Any chocolate or just kind of any particular brand of chocolate? Or, uh, Hershey, if you're listening to this year's show, uh, the, the email address is sponsor at Linux in laws, what are you? <laughs> in case you're listening. No, uh, jokes aside, Karen, 
Eddie yeah, Murphy I would say, well, about the time this is coming out is probably we're either coming up on or just having finished Fosdem, where there's delicious yeah. Belgium chocolate, and we'll be at mm-hmm. Fosdem, and you should come and say hi to us. I also want to really plug this podcast for using free and open infrastructure to do the. We're we're talking to each other on Big Blue Button, and it's such a relief to be given a, a, a link to software we can use. So I, I, I'm really, I, I applaud you for that. And I would say that your pick of the week should be some free software solution um, that you can get somebody else to use with you. Martin, if I'm completely mistaken, infrastructure has just blessed us with a new BBB instance anyway. So that's the perfect opportunity, <laughs> I think, no? I think, I think BBB was a, was a pox in the past as well. Fair enough. Yeah. I mean, Carrie just mentioned yeah. any open source software solution, so that counts. Even if it's a zoo of 20 million 237,000 components running on some slightly outdated operating system. Never mind. Never mind. Exactly. I mean, exactly. I mean, we have. I mean, BBB, if you're listening, and of course we had you on the show previously. Jokes aside, you are doing a very valuable service with that software because Linux Windows has been running on BBB. I'm tempted to say for for almost two and a half years. I think many schools um, as well, right? Yes, many uh, schools and uh, all the rest yeah. of it. And of yeah. course, Linux in-laws being the important keyword here. <laughs> <laughs> no man, schools or not. <laughs> anyway, it doesn't matter. Martin, over to you. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, this is not my pox of the week, but I was just going to um, uh, ask Bradley if he's heard of uh, a program called Yes Minister or Yes Prime Minister in, in, that was made in Britain, which is also... Bradley, yes. Very important. If you can't get to sleep, this is the TV show you want to watch. But all no, 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 no. This is also a, a political satire. Which um, yeah. same it's thing. Excellent. Yeah. yeah, yeah. What's, it, what's it called exactly? I'm trying to say. Yes, it. Prime yes, Minister. Yes, Minister, and yes, Prime Minister is the following. Oh, yes. uh, my spouse has, in fact, uh, uh, my spouse uh, loves uh, um, British television, so she has indeed watched it. And I'm sure. I'm sure she can point me in the right direction. To say. Oh, great, great, great. Absolutely. Martin uses yeah. this as a, as, as a replacement for a substitute for, for prescription drugs, so it must work. No, this only works if if you uh, have some some concept of the English language by actually living there. Otherwise, it's a bit complicated <laughs> to follow. Um, that rules out what about. 90% of the, of the British uh, yeah, 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 <laughs> It doesn't indeed, matter. Indeed. Anyway, so much. I keep interrupting. Your, your call. Mm. Uh, yeah, my actual pox is a um, series called Hijack, which is on Apple TV, I think, only. Um, but it's uh, it's one that I... Let's say <laughs> watched in one sitting uh, the whole series. So that's that's it doesn't happen very often for me. It, uh, yeah, it was definitely uh, worth watching, and it has one of my favorite actors in it, uh, Idris Alba. If you're familiar with him, your favorite lecturers, actors, actors. actors sorry, sorry, I keep, I keep, I keep, I keep confused. Okay, fair enough. Uh, people that yes. act. What about yourself? Yes. What about myself? People that act exactly <laughs> <laughs> myself. <laughs> No, I would pox the pox the pox of the week. Or my pox of the week is actually a movie called Red Dragon. It's a yes, it is. It would be. It's about uh, a sequel to Hannibal to the Silence of the Lambs movies in terms of Hannibal Lecter being in the cell. If people, if you have sat through the pandemic. Watching Zoom backgrounds and Microsoft Teams backgrounds, all the rest of it. And if you notice a certain cell in a basement, it's more than likely that cell from the movie. <laughs> Links will be in the show notes. Is to say, I won't give away too much, but essentially, it's about an FBI agent that help that is aided by a lunatic, namely Hannibal Lecter, in a cell tracking down a serial killer. The rest you will find on IMDb and, of course, in your favorite uh, on your favorite streaming service. As I said, I won't give away too much, but if you're into riveting thrillers, that's one you don't want to miss. It's ancient; it's about twenty years old, give or take a few, but that doesn't take away from the, the suspension. And with that, Karen Bradley, thank you, very much, thank you very much for being here. Mm, indeed, thank you so much. Thank you. And it's been so much fun. Keep up, keep up the good work. 
Well, and, and thank you all, and, and keep up your, uh, your good work. Uh, we're, we're we're fans of podcasts ourselves, and and thank have you. one ourselves, and and we'd love there being lots of open source and free software podcasts out there. And we're so glad you all have continued to do it for so long. We okay. are rebel, yeah. We are rebels at the heart, anyway. So that the four of us, right? Anyway, okay. This is the Linux in-laws. You come for the knowledge, but stay for the madness. Thank, Thank you, you for, for listening. listening. This podcast is licensed under the latest version of the Creative Commons license. Type attribution share alike. Credits for the intro music go to Blue Sea Roosters for their song Salad Margaret, to Twin Flames for their piece called The Flow, used for the segment intros, and finally to Celestial Ground for their song Sweet Justice, used by the Dark Side. You find these and other ditties licensed under CC at Chimando a website dedicated to liberate the music industry from choking copyright legislation and other crap concepts.